Okay, so I don't know if you guys have ever read C.S. Lewis, uh, maybe the Chronicles of Narnia, perhaps Mere Christianity. Uh, he's written a lot of books, and yeah, we can keep it on this slide for now. Uh, that, 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 that's okay. We, we, we can take it to the next slide. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great quote that I want to share with you guys. It's from a book called The Abolition of Man. Uh, it's about education. It's about the way that people think. And he has this incredible quote that uh, I think is pertinent for us this morning. He says that too often education, the educational system, they think that they have to cut down jungles in children's mind. That education is about cutting down jungles. But he says, no, really, it's about irrigating deserts. He says it's about irrigating deserts. It's not about cutting down jungles uh, and telling what not to do and, and trying to get rid of all these bad ideas, but, but nourishing and instilling good ideas and teaching them to think and to explore and to discover. And the reason why I say that is because I think there's also a lot of parallels to that to the church and to Christianity and to this general topic that we've been talking about through our walk in Galatians about what faithful living is. Because I think I've shared with you guys, when I came into full-time ministry here at Bayview, I assumed that the major problem that I would have to deal with amongst the American church would be legalism. Maybe this cutting down of jungles. And perhaps that's because I came from a somewhat legalistic background in the church that I grew up in. Uh, my parents were very much in the kind of Jerry Falwell, fundamental uh, kind of age of Christianity. And I kind of grew up in, in that as well. And so I, I was very much aware of uh, the dangers and the problems of legalism, especially as they existed maybe in the past 20, uh, 30 years uh, of, of church history. But you guys know that really, as I observe the American church, not even just this congregation, I'm not trying to be hard on you guys, I'm, I'm thinking also of myself, and also just of general churches uh, that I know and that I'm aware of, that really the problem that pastors need to accomplish is not cutting down the jungles of legalism, but actually irrigating the deserts of apathy. That as Christians, we actually struggle with apathy where we hide behind this word called grace, where, where we use grace as a defense mechanism to allow us to live a life that is comfortable and, and exactly what we want it to be, sin in all, with no fear of accountability, repercussions, and no desire for actual spiritual growth. And how in the Christian life, we can always kind of teeter-totter between falling into trying to uh, keep the law and falling into legalism, or hiding too much behind grace and falling into apathy, where really what we need to do is we need to focus on what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. To live a life not of legalism, not of apathy, but faithful living. That, that is really the topic that again and again we are coming to in Galatians. And the reason why I'm reviewing this is because I now want to take it to the next diagram. Because today I want us to talk about an aspect. We've been looking at different facets, different aspects of what faithful looking looks like, look, looks like in the Christian life. And so far, uh, up to this point in Galatians, we have talked about faithful living in such a way that is very much past-focused. We're looking to the cross, which is a good thing. We're looking to the cross. We're, we're looking behind us, and, and we're seeing what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. We see that especially in Galatians where Paul says that we have been crucified with Christ. And, and this idea that we need to uh, see ourselves, that we need to understand our identity as being crucified with Christ and resurrected with him. That's a kind of faith that we live in which we constantly look back. 
Romans 6 describes it as putting to death the members of our flesh. That's a very past-focused kind of faithful living, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Continue to do that. But there's also another aspect of faithful living that I don't think is taught about enough, and that is going to appear in Galatians that we need to talk about this morning, which is that the focus of our faith should not just, not just being the key word, be a past-focused faith, faith that looks to the cross, but as we go to the next slide, we're going to find that it also needs to be a future-focused faith that looks to our future promises, that, that looks to a future hope that we have. Therefore, you might say that faith is three-dimensional, that it's not just two-dimensional in the way that we look back in one direction towards the cross, but as we are walking, we are looking back to what has happened on the cross and also looking ahead to the promises of faith. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. There's a reason why I'm giving this long introduction. The reason is because just as last week, we, we focused on, on a very theological sermon. We, we, we had a theological message where we systematically, topically looked at a specific doctrine. We looked at the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in our adoption of sons. For one more week, and I promise this will be the last week that we do this before moving on into more text, but for one more week, we are going to continue to look at this important passage in Galatians chapter 4, specifically in verses 4 through 7. And today, we're going to focus specifically on verse 7 as it relates to this diagram. But just to kind of bring us all up to speed, because this is such an important passage in Galatians, this is such an important truth of the gospel that we really need to internalize, Let's read together. Uh, I'll, I'll read for you, and you can read silently along. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and we'll go from 4 to 7. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, or to buy back, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the, and what's that next word you see there? Adoption. Adoption so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then verse 6, And because you are sons, God had sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then verse 7 for today, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Just as last week, I realized that we really needed to focus on the theological truths of the role of the Spirit, in our adoption of sons, I'm also aware, and I'm becoming more aware, that there's something in verse 7 that I think we hear a lot of on Sunday mornings, and you've maybe even heard me mention a lot, that you yourself may not actually completely understand. Let's look at verse 7 again. Paul says, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then a heir according, or, or an heir through God. I think so often we hear that we are heirs of God or, or that we receive an inheritance of God. Maybe we hear in sermons or from pastors that we should uh, look forward or that we should put our trust into the promises of God. But I don't know if we spend enough time actually defining what those promises are. What is it that we actually are supposed to inherit as heirs of God? Well, when it says that we are his heir, 
what is it that we are actually specifically receiving? And if we're supposed to have a faithful life in which we're looking forward to future promises, in living in light of those future promises, it would be helpful if we actually knew what those specific promises were, right? So that's what I hope to do do today. Again, this is going to be what's called a systematic message because we're going to be theologically looking at different passages. We're going to be turning to different passages and hopefully illuminating what the rest of the Bible has to say about what it actually means to be an heir because today's big idea, which I think is the next slide, uh, today's big idea is that faith lives in light of the future. It lives in light of the future. It lives with a future focus. So today we have to understand what that future focus actually is. And in order to do that, let's turn to a chapter that I have turned to so many times because it's so pertinent to what we've been studying in Galatians. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we are going to look at verse 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. I love saying this. J.I. Packer, he's a Christian author. He's famous for the book Knowing God. Uh, In the book Knowing God, he calls Romans chapter 8 the mountaintop of the Bible. Romans 8 starts with the word therefore. It's as if from Genesis all the way up to Romans 8, that's the mountain climb. Therefore is based on everything that's happened in the Bible up to that point. And Romans 8 is like this peak of truth, this peak of, of what is true for the believer. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8. And we'll look specifically at verse 17. You can look at verse 16 before it. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. But look at what it says next. Fellow heirs with Christ. You might even in your translation have uh, the term co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The first thing that we need to understand about being an heir of God is that when we are an heir of God as his adopted sons, we are actually sharing in the inheritance that is given to Jesus. When we are heirs of God, we are sharing in the inheritance that is given to Jesus. So whenever you read your New Testament and and you read of some kind of promise that is given to Jesus the Son, there is an aspect of that. There is an element of that that is also going to be true for us. And to prove that, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And the beginning of Hebrews is so good, I'm just going to have to read the first verse for you as well. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is a great memorization passage for you guys to commit to. But this is the beginning of Hebrews. It says at the beginning of Hebrews, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
So again, as we're thinking of this concept of, of living in light of the future, of a future-focused faith, of us being heirs of God, when we think about what it means for us to be heirs of God, there has to be an element of that where we understand that actually Christ is the true heir of God and what he inherits is also going to have implications for what we inherit. But we're now at the great heresy fork roads. <laughs> where we need to be careful that we don't go down the wrong path and come to the wrong conclusion and understand this in the correct biblical way. And to do that, let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. We actually had the great joy in my Waypoint group of being able to go through uh, Colossians. I think a lot of you guys are still going through James right now. I think one Waypoint group is going through John. There's some really good studies happening right now. Go to Colossians. It's one of the Ians in your New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's one of the prison epistles. It's written also by Paul. And I want us to look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 is such an important passage about who Jesus is. And we're going to look at probably the first three verses in this section. You may even have in your heading in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, maybe the preeminence of Christ or a heading that, that looks something like that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says this. It says that he, being Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What's important here is that at this point, we've concluded the fact that we are heirs with God, but that Jesus is actually the true heir of God, and that he has, made, he has been made the inheritor of all things, and so we are actually co-heirs with Jesus. The reason why we call this the heretical fork in the road is because what we don't want to understand is that because we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are equal to Christ. It does not mean that we are equal to Christ, and it certainly doesn't mean that we somehow inherit his divinity as Christ. Because we ourselves are creation. Colossians says that right here, that creation was made by him, and guess what? Creation, which includes you and me, was made for him. Which is why Jesus here is called the firstborn. Or he's called um, the, the first to be begotten. It doesn't mean that he was created, because if he was a created thing, then it would be impossible for him to create other things if he himself was part of that creation process. He's the image of the invisible God. He himself is God, but he's described as the firstborn because of this adoption analogy. Because remember when we talk about how you're a slave and the emperor goes down to the slave market, he redeems you, he buys you, and then he adopts you as a son? All of that is true. But by calling Jesus the firstborn, it kind of brings in this reality that even though you're adopted, that's good, but Jesus is still the firstborn of God. And that there is a special preeminence 
that, that, that there is a special privilege in the inheritance that Jesus receives that is still going to be different from what you and I receive. A classic example of that would be in Philippians chapter 2, where it says that he is given a name which is above every name. We're at the foot of Jesus, every knee will bow. You and I, we don't share in that. Sometimes we think that we're going to go to heaven and all our enemies are going to bow at our feet. But guess what? It's going to be the opposite. We are going to go to heaven and we are going to recognize Jesus. We're going to recognize that we are adopted by God. We are adopted into God's family. But we're going to look to Jesus and say, but Jesus is preeminent. We are only benefited because we get to share in what actually belongs to Jesus. We may be adopted, but he is the firstborn. It doesn't mean that he's created. It doesn't mean that he's subordinate to God because it says that he is the image of the invisible God. But it makes clear that even though we are co-heirs with Christ, we share with Christ and we enjoy that benefit, but we don't partake in Christ's divinity. We don't become equal with Christ. So that is important in the way that we think of living our life by faith in light of the future that when we read the promises that are going to be inherited by Jesus, we can look at those and say, I am a co-heir of that as well, as long as we don't make the mistake of thinking that we become equal to Jesus, because he himself is always the firstborn. But beyond that, come on, Stephen, let's get into some real specifics, right? Like, give us the good stuff. It's like, this sounds very morbid, but it's like when a beloved family member dies. And, and it's sad, but underneath all that sadness is, I better get that gun, or I, I, I better get that antique, or hey, my side of the family better get these things, right? We, we, we want to see what, what we inherit, right? Like, give us the list, Stephen. What's the good stuff? Well, let's go through the list of the good stuff. Let's go through the list of the things that we share with Christ that we inherit as co-heirs of Christ. And we can go back to Galatians for this one. We'll start in Galatians just as a jump-off point. I didn't make slides for this. Actually, we'll look at the verse first, and then I'll give you the first point. Go to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 29. This is right before chapter 4, so you're not going back too far. So just go back to our home base of Galatians chapter 4. Then go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. It's the last verse in the chapter. You guys are doing really great with this, by the way. We're not going to do this every Sunday, but it's good occasionally to have these kind of systematic hopping kind of messages. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Look at what Paul has to say. He says that, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And then there's that key word again. Heirs according to the promise. The first thing that we inherit as adopted sons of God, I'm just going to use as a very basic overarching label, the first thing that we inherit is eternal glory, salvation, the gift of forgiveness. God made a promise to Abraham and said that you're going to be my people. I'm going to make a nation out of you. Later on in what's called the Mosaic Covenant, he says very intimately to these sons of Abraham that I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. That kind of covenant relationship is kind of the classic word that we use for it. That, 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 that covenant reality that we have of God being our God and us belonging to him, 
that's something that we inherit. That, 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 that's something that is true for us, that it's true right now. Yes, it has been initiated in our life, but wow, there is a fulfillment of those promises in heaven of eternal salvation that is still waiting for us. Let's look to Titus chapter 3. Titus is uh, before Hebrews. Titus and Philemon. Philemon's really short, so though as you're flipping, you might go straight from Hebrews into Titus. Titus comes before Hebrews. First expositional series I did here at Bayview Bible Church actually was a verse-by-verse through the book of Titus. Paul's letter to Titus. Great, great little book. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, and we are going to look specifically in chapter 3 at verses 4 to 7. Another great passage, worth committing to memory. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see how uh, again and again this concept of being an heir is connected to the gospel? You're probably thinking to yourself as we're flipping around, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that this word heir occurred so many times in the New Testament. But God wants us to think of our Christian life, not just in terms of past-looking faith, but of future-looking faith as heirs. And I believe that the biblical word for that is hope, I'm going to say. I believe that hope, as we see it here in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, is an understanding that because we are heirs of God, we have been saved, but although we are saved now, we are in this fleshly body, we're in this sinful state, there is going to be a day where we are fully glorified. There's going to be a day where the work of salvation will be complete in us. In the meantime, it calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're slowly going through this process of sanctification, but we can live in hope that even though we suffer with lust or temptation or anger or control over our emotions or a sense of a lack of self-worth as we're comparing ourselves to others, all these sins that the darts of the arrows are just constantly piercing us, we can rest in the hope that we are sons of Abraham that we are part of God's people that God has died for and that God has prepared a better body for us. That God himself has prepared a hope and a home for us where we are free from sin. And I want to let you guys know that this whole thing that we're doing of looking at future promises, living by faith in light of the future, what is true of the future only matters if we choose to live that way now. If we really have a hope that by God's spirit, he's going to completely glorify us and that he's going to completely give us a state where we are free from sin, we should also recognize that the spirit that he has given us has equipped us to resist sin in our life. Because we have a future home in heaven, we should live on this earth looking forward to the way that we would live in the day that we are fully glorified in heaven. 
So there's something to be said about as inheritors. It may sound, um, it, it may sound very elementary or very base, but we should recognize that our forgiveness on the cross that we experience right now is only half of the true salvation promise. That yes, we have been saved and forgiven, praise the Lord for that, but that we will also someday be glorified. That we also someday be glorified. Just very quickly, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm just going to read it quickly for the sake of time. But I think this is a great connection. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 describing this and how it was true for Abraham and how it could be true for us. Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking that the land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Faithful living looks forward to a better country. It looks forward to a better home. It looks forward to the reality that we will be free from the presence of sin because we are the sons of Abraham through Jesus Christ. And just as Abraham wandered in the land of Canaan, never having actually received the physical promises in his lifetime, that's okay. He still lived a future-focused life. He lived a life, his entire life, focused on the idea that God was still going to fulfill his promises, even if after his own death. That is a model for us today. Abraham had a life where he understood that he was an heir of a promise, even if it wouldn't be fulfilled in his own lifetime. We enjoy the same. The second heading, the second point, just as we inherit a future hope, the future hope of glorification as sons of Abraham, we also look forward to inheriting the opportunity to rule with Christ over creation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. There are several verses that talk about this. I think actually Revelation 20 actually talks on this. But we'll save that for the focus hour as we deal with eschatology. Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 20. Famous verse. Revelation 3.20. Revelation, that's the last one. Last book in your Bible. This is Jesus speaking. Maybe your Bible even has it in red. If so, you win. You have the better Bible. Red letter. Verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. But let's now look at the next two verses. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This idea of conquer, I think we can connect to Romans chapter 8. We're not going to have time to look at it. But understanding conquer as this idea of experiencing salvation. Romans 8 is famous for this idea that we are more than conquerors. 
Jesus says that if you have experienced salvation, you are also going to have a chance someday in a future heaven and earth to rule with me, not as equals with Christ, but with Christ as the firstborn and as us co-ruling with him. And if that is something that's going to be true in the future, we must also make sure that we are leading and ordering our life here on earth as if we would someday in God's future kingdom. It doesn't mean that we're making God's kingdom here on earth. Let's make that very clear. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We're not bringing his kingdom down onto earth, but we are understanding that we are citizens of a future kingdom where we are going to rule with Christ. Therefore, men, let's rule our families accordingly. Let's rule our families in the Lord, not domineering and exasperating them, but loving them like Christ and loving them in a way that points to the word and makes the word central to our home. Mothers, as you're raising your children, you, you, you're part of the order of their life. You, you, you dictate their schedule. You, you dictate their activities. Make sure that it's one that is focused on the future kingdom. Make sure that it's one that is proclaiming what our future reality will look like because we someday will have the opportunity to rule with Christ over a physical creation, not as equals, but as co-heirs. And then there's one more. These are very broad brushstrokes of, uh, of inheritance, but I've tried to give you specifics. We have an inheritance of future glorification. We have the inheritance of being a co-ruler with Christ in his future kingdom, not as equals, but, but as a co-heir. All these things should dictate how we live. But I think there's one more that we really need to talk about that we shouldn't take for granted. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to look at verse 11. This will be our third and final point. You may recognize Corinthians from the many weddings that you attended this past summer. <laughs> I had the opportunity to read scripture at my brother's wedding. I specifically decided not to read 1 Corinthians 13. I'm a bit of a contrarian. We read 1 John 4 instead. Great passage. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want us to look at verse 11. Actually, we can even skip to verse 8 just because it's so good. The language is so good here in context. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And now at verse 12, for now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abides. See that word hope again? But the greatest of these is love. The most important thing that we inherit as being co-heirs of Jesus Christ is we inherit God, guys. We inherit God. And don't, don't for a second let yourself think that that is some kind of cliche. Or that is some kind of, oh yeah, of course we inherit God. Guys, the creator of the universe, who put Jupiter in its place 
the God of the universe who made the mountains and the ocean and the seas, who made you, who knows the hairs on your head. He says, your inheritance is me, Abba, Father. We need to understand that there is a future hope that we have where we get to know and see our maker face to face, like between a father and a son. This promise that God gave to Abraham to say that I'm going to fix this broken world. I used to walk with my people, but then sin got in the way, and now I have to fix this broken world through a broken family. I have to fix this world by sending a son born of a woman, born under the law. It's all so that God can put himself back in a situation where he can walk with his people. The greatest good that God has to give you is himself. He can't give you anything better. The greatest inheritance that we have as children of God is God himself. Look with me now at our final passage, Revelation chapter 21. The end of the matter, all has been said. The end of the last book of the Bible. Probably the most powerful moments of my ministry so far has been literally standing over holes in the ground with crying family members, getting ready to put a deceased person into that hole and reading Revelation 21. We're going to look at the beginning of the chapter as we look to the future. This is John writing. He says, Then I saw, not just thinking, not just predicting, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold. We see behold all throughout scripture. Behold, behold, behold. Here's one more. Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is our inheritance, guys. That there's this paradise that John is seeing. But how is that paradise described? God says, guess what? I once again get to be with my people. I get to see my people face to face. Are you living your Christian life as if God is the greatest thing that you have inherited from your salvation? Not just the free pass out of hell. Not just the hope of seeing dead family members in heaven. But the hope and the glory of seeing your maker who loves you, and to know that you will have complete and total access to God who died on the cross for your sins. That is the greatest thing that we inherit. And none of this matters if we don't live in light of it. None of this matters if we don't walk by faith today like Abraham did, looking forward to those future promises, living in light of that future, and choosing to dictate that hope into how we behave today. Here's my last story for you. I had a professor at college, not Dr. Armstrong. 
Dr. Uh, not, not Dr. McMath, Dr. Armstrong, I should say, not Dr. McMath, but Dr. Armstrong, he was our New Testament professor. He had this great story of how occasionally he would have to travel to Europe and that when he would travel to Europe, he would, at the beginning of that week, say he was traveling on a Friday, on Monday, he would set all of his watches, all his clocks, to the time of that place in Europe where he was traveling to. And the reason for that is because he knew that even though he wasn't physically present there yet, the tickets have been bought, the plans have been arranged, everything was set in order for him to be there. The only thing that remained was him actually presently experiencing it. So in the meantime, he wanted to set his clocks, he wanted to set his time, he wanted to set his life in his order in expectation, not of where he was now, but of where he would be. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to walk by faith by setting our spiritual clocks to live on this earth in light of what we will someday inherit in the future earth. Pray with me.